Let's pray. Lord, the prophet Isaiah said about you that by your stripes we are healed. Lord, a lot of people understand that to me, physical healing. But Lord Jesus, you came to heal us of the, of the, of the, the thing that really is of importance, and that is spiritual healing. And Lord, your stripes took away our sin. Lord, we are very concerned about, and rightly so, we're very concerned about physical things, things like coronavirus and pandemics and, and all those kinds of things. But Lord Jesus, what's far more important is spiritual healing. And Lord, today we come to worship. We come today to give you the praise and the glory and the honor. And we ascribe to you glory and power and blessing. Because you alone deserve it. Lord, you declared to us your peace. Even before you went to suffer for us. Lord, we, are, we stand in awe. And today, Lord, as we come to give you that praise and worship, I pray that by your spirit that you'll open up this, this great, powerful passage, Scripture. It talks about how we are to be soldiering on, regardless of how the world sees us. So, Lord, we're going to give you thanks and praise, and we ask that your spirit will open up our hearts and minds. May we be changed as a result of being here today. Prepare us, Lord, for what awaits us beyond these doors, because, Lord, you've called us to be the witness there. And we're going to thank you and praise you for what you will do. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we begin the message today, let me remind us of the power of good Christian music. See, the Lord often gets the truth into our hearts through music in ways that is profound. But music also can be powerful in a negative sense as well, like giving us false teaching that enters into our hearts through music, such as with the lyrics like the song, What a Wonderful Name. Now, much of that song is great. I like a lot of it. But the writer of the song just had to write these lyrics in. You didn't want heaven without us, so Jesus, you brought heaven down. Now, oh dear is right, yes. Now, I have searched scripture, and I'm sure that you have as well, but I don't see any hint of what the scriptures say that comports to the truth or comports to what these lyrics are saying. There's nothing there. There's not even a hint of it. But... You know, call me crazy, but I really do think that before the universe was created, that God was perfectly fine with us not being in heaven. What do you think? (laughs) But what a wonderful name was on Billboard's Hot Christian Songs chart for 77 weeks. I think it's kind of a strange little dealio there, but, but it made it the third longest run of a song on that chart ever. And at Grace United, we have sung this song here from time to time, but we have changed the lyrics in question to make it more in line with truth. Praise God for that. But now, singer and songwriter Michael Card, I love this guy. He is an extremely talented brother, and he's blessed of the Lord. And as a songwriter, the lyrics of his songs reflect, in my opinion anyway, an accurate understanding of God's truth 
in his, in his songs. Like his song, God's Own Fool. And the lyrics go something like this. Seems I've imagined him all of my life as the wisest of all of mankind. But if God's holy wisdom is foolish to man, he must have seemed out of his mind. Even his family said that he was mad or crazy. And the priest said a demon's to blame. But God, in the form of this angry young man, could not have seemed perfectly sane. We in our foolishness thought we were wise. He played the fool, and he opened our eyes. We in our weakness believed we were strong. He became helpless to show that we were wrong. But you know, so much in our world, and even in our lives, depends on how we see things, isn't it? Like lenses through which we look at life. We have a clear picture of this as we encounter the coronavirus. And we see how people see this virus through their own lenses of their eyes. Some people have panicked, haven't they? Cases and cases of toilet paper purchased. They can't even fit into their cars. You know, hand sanitizer is nowhere to be found, so you've got to make your own, right? And some have completely, though, have blown the whole thing off, and they're not hoarding anything. They're just kind of letting life go. But I think that most of us are kind of right in the middle, you know. Especially now, though, we need to be wise in the ways of social distancing and good hygiene practices. Uh, I think Greg was talking about, I asked him today, you know, should I do a handshake or fist bump? And he says, no, what do you call it, foot five. (laughs) It's kind of neat, foot five. But, you know, I think, you know, we need to be wise about it, but not go overboard. And I love what Don Davis recently posted on Facebook. Maybe you've seen this. Got a little picture of Bob, right? Said, this is Bob. Bob is not panicking. Bob listens to scientists instead of news media. Bob is not buying items in bulk. Bob washes his hands all year long because he's not gross, and he knows basic hygiene. Be like Bob. (laughs) I love that. And so when it comes to our passage for today, the Corinthians were beginning to see their faith, though, in a different way that was, in a way that was different than when Paul introduced the gospel, introduced Jesus to them. They began to drift from what Paul and his fellow workers established. Remember how Paul said to the believers, he likened them to a, he likened himself to a master builder, laying a foundation, and other people were building on that foundation, which was the Corinthian church. But what kind of foundation is it that Paul was talking about? It's Jesus Christ and him crucified. The foundation that is repulsive and scandalous to the natural person, or we would call them non-Christians. But by Paul's preaching of this gospel, many came to Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. God had not only given them a new life and a new heart, he also gave them a new set of lenses, so to speak, through which they can see life through a whole new set of eyes. And the message of the cross began as something very precious to the Corinthian believers. They were hungry to hear and live out the truth, and they amassed strong teachers to help them do this. But over time, and not really that much time, they began to shake off the new, or take off the new glasses and put on the old glasses that they had. And it was tainting their relationship between them and the Lord and between them and other believers in Christ. 
They were again using human wisdom to evaluate their leaders with so much zeal that quarrels broke out between them and among them as to who was the best spiritual leader of all things. They put their leaders on pedestals and campaigned for their champion. And as we know, Paul became aware of the division that was threatening to break apart the church in Corinth because the believers were reverting back to their old ways of seeing life. And for the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians, in so many different ways, Paul says, in essence, stop this. Enough of this. Stop boasting in men. Don't divide what Jesus is trying to build. And so in our passage for today, 1 Corinthians 4, 1 to 21, we will see the vast difference between the skewed viewpoint of the Corinthian Christians and the true reality of the Christian life preached and lived out by Paul and his fellow leaders. And like the difference between the lyrics of What a Wonderful Name and God's Own Fool, the songs Paul and the Corinthian church sang show that they were on different sheets of music. But sadly, we hate to admit it, but we're more like the Corinthians, the church, than we are like Paul and his builders. We don't like to admit that, but I sense that we are. The Corinthian church tended to drift toward enjoying God's gifts and not so much embracing the reality of true Christianity. And often we do the same, don't they? Don't we? We don't, and they didn't, want to be viewed as foolish by the world. But my encouragement for us today is that we sing more from Paul's sheet of music than from the Corinthians' sheet of music. And so our thing for today, if you haven't already guessed, is reflected in the title, God's Fools. For this is the description that Paul gave of himself and his fellow leaders. And we're going to see Paul and company as God's fools setting forth the reality of what life in Christ is. And once again, see the radical difference between God's life and what the world calls life. The wisdom of God is foolishness to the world, said the Apostle Paul. In verses 1 to 5, we see God's fools bashing the pedestals the Corinthian Christians put them on. God, Paul declared themselves as servants and stewards. And in these verses, Paul continues to take himself and particularly Apollos, but also by way of application, all the godly leaders off the pedestal that the Corinthian believers were putting them on. So let's read these verses, 1 Corinthians 4, 1 to 5. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of Sir Seward that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Servants and stewards, not godlike leaders to idolize. This is what Paul strongly encouraged the Corinthians to see them, and indeed all of the leaders as. But they were not mere student, servants and stewards. They were servants of Christ and stewards of God's mysteries. 
And this is what kept Paul and Apollos focused on what God had called them to do. And for Paul to carry on undistracted, for he heard about some of them even judging him. Now, we don't know exactly who it was and why they were judging him in this passage, at least not right here. But we're going to find out more about that in the second letter, 2 Corinthians. But in a nutshell, let me say this, that there were attacks from false teachers infiltrating from the outside, coming in, and some of the Christians began to believe these false teachers and began to side against Paul with them and turn against him. Now, these teachers were whom Paul referred to as super apostles, and Paul described them also as Satan's ministers of righteousness, attempting to undermine his God-given authority as an apostle, as one who was sent by God with the gospel. But Paul cared nothing for their judgment and about their judgment of him. There was one and only one person to whom Paul was accountable, and that was to the one who sent him. It was to his Lord. That was Jesus Christ. The Lord sent him to Corinth, and one day, he said, everything will be made clear. He also said that he had a duty to fulfill as a faithful steward of God's mysteries. And we think about mysteries, right? I don't know if you're involved in mysteries or you like to read mysteries. And usually the question is, great, who done it, right? Who done this? Well, mystery in this sense is not quite this way in the scriptures. Mystery in this context is really what God kind of mentioned in the past, kind of concealed it. And then later on through his prophets and apostles, he, he revealed it and made it clear. And so... Let me give an example here, a classic example of what I'm talking about. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul praises the Lord and mentions a mystery that the Lord revealed to him. Paul said, God has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, we see mystery here is one of unity, specifically to unite all things in him. But if we stop right there and we just kind of conclude that this is what it's all about, we will misunderstand and we will misapply what Paul is saying here. And in fact, some actually have done that. And they're saying here that Paul here is talking about universal salvation. Where because Jesus Christ died, that means every person is going to go to heaven. That's what's called universalism. But here, is it, it, you could not be further from the truth when you talk about this here. Because Paul specifically deals with what this mystery is a couple chapters later in Ephesians 3, 4 to 6. And he says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So again, he's talking about the mystery. What is this mystery? This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. Now, did you see it? The mystery which was hidden before is now been brought out by the Lord through Paul. And the mystery is that Jews and Gentiles now can be God's chosen people. But it's through the gospel. 
is through responding in repentance and faith. That's how a person becomes part of God's people. Not just because Jesus died and everybody's going to heaven. Must some, people must receive the gospel and receive Christ in order for that to happen. But this discharging of the stewardship of God's mysteries was yet another motivator to keep Paul going. He knew that he would have to give an account one day of how he handled these mysteries. Paul was hard at work in his twofold task as a servant and a steward, and he let nothing or no one deter him from achieving that goal. And that's why it did not matter to him who or how many judged him. It's as if Paul was saying, listen, your judgment about me is like water, and I'm like a duck. I'm not aware of anything I'm guilty of, but that does not mean I'm innocent. Guys, listen, he says. I'm too busy to worry about your judgment. Why don't we wait until the day of judgment when we will all stand before the Lord and he will then bring things into light? But what a single-minded focus. What a great example that is to us, isn't it? How many weak-willed religious people do you know? I'm talking weak-willed. One criticism, and they're done, right? One criticism about their faith in Christ or about their ministry, and they're, they're done, they're finished, or they push back violently. See, we're going to see later on in Paul's Corinthian correspondence, later on like the second letter, of just the kind of flack that Paul received from others. And if we read carefully, we will see that many people deserted Paul just when he needed them the most. Now, we look at Paul the Great, as I kind of define him. But what kept Paul going? What was it that gave him the motivation to do this? It was his love for the Lord Jesus because Jesus loved him first. This was at the heart of Paul's commitment to the Lord. It's been said that, that Paul never got over the wonder of salvation, that fact that Jesus saved him. Well, what about you and me? Remember how Paul described the Corinthians. They were set apart for Christ. Christ was their righteousness. Christ was their redemption from sin. Christ was their Lord and Savior. Christ was their wisdom. And now that we who are saved, we have been saved for two purposes. One purpose is to glorify God. And the other purpose is to enjoy Him forever. This is what we're about. This is what we're designed to be. And this is why God saved us. What a privilege that we have, my dear friends. We have access to all the riches found in a close walk with Jesus to include peace, even in the midst of pandemics. We remember what Jesus told us and told his disciples right before he went to the cross. He said this in John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. We heard this before earlier today. In John 16, 33, Jesus also said, this may be a couple hours later, he said this again concerning peace. He says, I said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will, that's a promise, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Let's be so wrapped up in our walk with the Lord, in our work for the Lord, that we grow deaf to every naysayer, regardless who is opposing us and regardless of how shrill their opposition is against us. 
Now in verses 6 and 7, we see the boldness of God's fools. Paul here chides the Corinthians once again and warns them about spiritual pride. He says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Let's be brief here and basically jump into the application for lack of time because the third part is really, really good stuff. In a nutshell, Paul is pointing out to them that when we apply human wisdom to put a favorite guy on the pedestal and try to champion his cause, it is only a demonstration of pride. See, Paul is dragging them back, as it were, to the only standard by which any and every spiritual leader is to be evaluated. It's the Word of God. No less than 20 times in the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul makes an allusion or direct quotation to the Scripture. And, of course, as we know, the Scripture that they had, the only thing that they had was the Old Testament. Now, there's much we can say here, but let me just comment this way. We all need to live under the authority of God's word. Tragically, though, we, even in the church, live in an age where feelings and not truth reign supreme. Do you agree with me on this? Do you see it? I know I I see it all the time. And we have the holy responsibility to help one another toward living a holy life, to be more holy in our lifestyles. And we can only do that if we are consistently living by that standard of Scripture that all of us need to be. For example, to Christian men and even some women, I cannot point out the sin of their engaging in pornography if I am doing this. But since I'm not engaging it, I have the responsibility to lovingly but firmly tell those who are watching it and engaging in it to stop, lest it destroy their own souls and their relationships. Now, Paul said to the Corinthians and to us by extension, don't go beyond the standard of God's word. For when we do, we become puffed up with pride. Now, Paul's bottom line here is that out of obedience to Scripture and out of love for the Lord is the divine foundation upon which our unity rests. That's what he's talking about here. Don't go beyond Scripture. Adhere to Scripture. Submit yourself unto the Scripture because that is where we really are to be unified. It's around truth. Now, we notice in verses 1 to 5 how Paul bashed the pedestal of the Corinthians that he put them on. They put him on and other leaders. And in verses 6 and 7, they were bold as they warned the Corinthian believers about spiritual pride and what causes it. And in the last section, we're going to see the beacon that God's fools shined in bringing the Corinthian believers back to reality. So let's read these verses and then allow, us, allow me to walk us through them. So in verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 8 to 21, he says, already you, have become all, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you became kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you're strong. 
You are held in honor, but we are in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I am not coming to you. But I will come to you if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? And so for the first time, Paul basically says, in a sense, he's beating them at their own game. It's almost as if he's saying, you want powerful rhetoric? You want biting sarcasm? Let's do it. Let's go. And so he is serving up a scandalous rebuke to the foolishness of the immature Corinthians. Their spiritual foolishness was the cause of their disunity. And Paul wanted to forcefully but lovingly uncover their immaturity. Make it plain for them, obvious for them to see this. In verses 8 to 14, we see Paul address the immature Corinthians as spiritually full, mature, rich, powerful, even liking them to kings. Now, Paul described the Corinthian believers as wise and strong and honorable. This was pleasing to the ear. Great rhetoric, Paul. Love this. But in reality... What was Paul saying? Busted. <laughs> See, Paul pointed out their immaturity in the earlier chapters. Here was biting sarcasm. And now he began to shine the light like a bright beacon back to the life he had spent 18 months instructing them about. Paul previously mentioned about their blessings in Christ at the end of chapter 3. He says, all things are yours, Paul said, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. The treasures that they had in Christ, how they loved to hear about the blessings that they had, the gifts of God because of salvation in Christ. But narrowly focusing on the blessings in Christ gives a very unbalanced view of life. And the Corinthians became stuck in simply living a better life. See, Paul sarcastically called them wise and strong and honorable, but to focus on the gifts of God at the expense of the reality of the Christian life left their pride intact, and it showed itself in their disunity. They were at each other's throats because of the promotion of their own things. And in their case, it was a promotion of their guy. That's why there were Paulites and Apollosites and Cephasites and the mystical Christites. The focus on gifts revealed their spiritual pride, and it was killing their unity. Now, obviously, we don't have any apostles named Paul or Apollos here, but we are still tempted at self-promotion 
Even a Grace United. What about good old-fashioned self-reliance? Like, you know, I can make it on my own. I don't need you guys. Or at least sometimes maybe that's the temptation, you know. You don't, I don't need you, but, you know, you need me, you know. I can help you, but, you know, you just kind of, you just let me do things on my own. Or what about a once-a-week meeting? You know, and we consider that is the end of our religion for the day, for the week, right? I'm going to check my box and just go about um, my own business. As if our life that God has called us to live is confined within the confines of this building. Or perhaps traditional church done in the traditional way. After all, look around. We've got a Civil War era building. You know, it it's, tends to lend itself toward a traditional way of doing things. I mean, like, for example, we don't have anything but pews in here. We can't pull up these things and put chairs in circles, right? So it's tradition here. Now, some of the temptation, I think, at Grace United, we've kind of resisted and maybe overcome. Like, for example, music. You know, some people kind of complain we, we needed some hymnals, and we don't have hymnals. And you look at the organ here, we don't even know how to do this. We don't know how to play it, you know, and so it's sitting there. But, of course, as we know, there's nothing wrong, per se, with hymnals. There's nothing wrong with organ music at all. But how easy is it to get locked in to our own comfort level and not allowing room for other ways that are not sinful? And I thank the Lord that we can be and that we are flexible. You know, I mean, if there's anything perpetual here, it's change, right? But... Let's continue even more now than ever before to let the interest of the other person take precedence. Remember what Paul said in Philippians 2.4. He said, consider others more significant than yourself for the sake of mutual love for Jesus and out of love for one another. And so rather than focusing on the blessings of Christ as the vision of real Christian life, here's what Paul did. Paul put forth by his own example of the other side of the real Christian life. Blessings are good. Blessings are great. We need to be thinking of those. But there is another side totally that they neglected. And Paul is now getting ready to tell them this. Paul reminds them that real Christian life was something far different than the path that they had started to go down. So let's take a look at the contrast between the Corinthian believers and that of Paul and the leaders. Paul says of themselves as leaders that they were foolish and they were weak and dishonored. They simply did not look the part as leaders. They lived their lives in great need, even not, not even having the basic necessities of food and clothing and shelter. They lived their lives in humble service, engaging in honest labor. But when they were opposed, this is where they shine brightly. When people made up and spread the vilest stuff about them, Paul and his friends blessed them. Paul and his friends, even when they were tracked down and, they, and other people made life miserable for them, they soldiered on, enduring for the sake of Christ, not giving up regardless of how much pushback they received. Now, how was it that they could and that they did respond that way? In the worst of situations brought about by the non-Christians of the day, what made them tick? How was it they were able to do this consistently? Well, in part, it was their embrace of reality. See, Paul and his fellow leaders accepted life as it was, not as how they wished 
life to be. They did not attempt to change anything about themselves or their message. They were not disillusioned about non-Christians and how non-Christians treated them. And Paul concluded this, that the world saw them as scum. Scum of the earth, belonging to the garbage heap of their day. Refuse, garbage. That's how Paul concluded, that's how the world saw them. And what is more amazing is that Paul and company not only acknowledged their scum identity, they embraced it and had done so for a long time. But let's all think about this for a minute and bring this kind of up to date in our world. Think about scum identity and scum mentality for a second. And I include all of us here because later on, Paul told the Corinthian believers, imitate me. And so let's do this. Let's, let's kind of play this out. What would life be like for us if we really embraced a scum identity, knowing that the world sees us in this way? Imagine yourself being severely criticized for being a Christian, severely criticized. What's the fallout from that? Lose friends, defriended on social media, and depending on who's offended, your livelihood could be at stake. If your name is Baronel Stutzman, for example, and you are in the floral business, how would you handle things if not one, not two, but three lawsuits were levied against you because of your Christian convictions? Three. Talk about life not being fair. All she was doing was trying to serve the Lord. But what was happening to her? But if we had a scum identity, then we would expect that, wouldn't we? And we would even be surprised if the world showed us any dignity at all. But it comes with the territory, doesn't it? It really, really does. When we step over the line and identify with the biblical Jesus, not some kind of caricature of Jesus, the biblical one, we are going to be viewed and often treated as scum of the world. And tragically, the failure of leaders in the church in our day embrace to the scum mentality is why we cater to the world in its ways. We love the blessings of following Jesus, don't we? Go like this. We love it. But to embrace the hatred of the world that hates Jesus? Not so much. Let's never forget that when Paul walked into Corinth, into Corinth as Christ's servant and the stewards of God's mysteries, he knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that that message Jesus Christ and him crucified, would not be accepted. He knew that it wasn't going to be. And the fact that the church was established in that very place was primary evidence that God did a work there. Because only the Spirit of God can bring conviction and open the eyes and enable somebody to accept the gospel. See, the world sees a scandalous character of true servants of God, and it is uncomfortable with them at best. See, they can't handle it, can they? When a Christian is persecuted, and they don't stop serving the Lord and even come back for more persecution. They can't handle this. Or when a Christian is reviled, and they bless the revilers. The spiritual fact of life is that true Christians who are sold out to Jesus are scum to the world. Let's, let's, let's own this, shall we? It's always been that way, and it always will be this way. But, you know, try using that as a recruiting tool to win people to Christ. 
You tell them, now when you begin to follow Jesus, you'll be hated. People will not understand you. They will drag you before government officials because you live for God. You'll be severely mistreated and maybe even killed. Who in the world would sign up for that? Anybody? Couple? (laughs) Yeah, couple. I don't see anybody else raising their hands. Yes. But others signed up for it as well. How about the 11 apostles? Because that's exactly what Jesus told them what happened to them. And what did happen to them? Now, as we know, church tradition tells us that every apostle was indeed severely mistreated because they followed Jesus. And according to some authors, every one of the apostles were martyred except for John. And what happened to him? He was boiled in oil and lived to tell about it. God did a miracle in his life. But consider what often passes for evangelism proclamation in our day. It's almost as if Jesus is begging people to accept him, basically almost on his knees. That's a blasphemous thinking. But that's how many people, that's oftentimes how we see it, don't we? Please come to me. No repentance from sin required, just belief. That's all. So what's changed? Is it the gospel? Not at all. Or is it that we want to use human wisdom to reach the world for Christ? Could it be that we have moved a little backwards and have adopted somewhat of a Corinthian comfort, seeking to have Jesus make our lives a bit better and wise and strong and honorable and promote that? rather than to embrace a scum mentality, an identity. Now, when I was a kid, now you guys don't know this because uh, you're, you're, you're kind of kids yourselves, but when I was a kid, some of the older ones may remember this, I saw this certain commercial about luxurious Chrysler cars. Remember this? And so what was so luxurious about them? Yes, a fairy tale. It's fake news. It's been that way for a long time. What I call the Corinthian comfort has tricked us into thinking that the Christian life is one of improvement in this life. Could it be that we have bought an empty bill of goods that the world has defined for us as to what the church needs to look like in order for it to be cool and accepting to them? See, we've attempted to reduce the church that Jesus is building to be just an organization that helps human flourishing. In other words, to help people live a better, happier life. There's a, an organization called the Acton Institute, and they published an article about the role of Christianity that plays in human flourishing. And here's what they say. The challenge for the church is to define and promote human flourishing which we might otherwise describe as human well-being or human happiness, in the presence of God amid a culture of death and destruction. Sounds a little bit to me like the Corinthian comfort, which as we know is the world's marketing ploy, and it means nothing. So Corinthians, since you're so wise, what to do to stop the divisions, to cease following the world's ways that you have pledged to leave behind? What's the next step, Corinthians? In a word, imitate Paul. Imitate Paul, you mean the one who embraces scum identity? 
That Paul? Exactly. In verses 15 to 18, the apostle invites them to do just that. But why do that? And how? Let's look at the answers to both questions. First, Paul gave a compelling reason for their imitating him. He was their spiritual father. This idea of giving honor to one's father meant so much more then than it does now. See, back in the first century, honoring one's father was absolutely imperative. Kids would rather die than to bring dishonor to the father's good name. And now we have Paul saying that he was their spiritual father. He gave them the gospel and they responded in repentance and faith in Christ. That made him, humanly speaking, their father. And the Corinthian Christians bringing honor to their spiritual father was something that was supposed to be a given, even if it meant that they needed to become scum of the earth. But now Paul turns his attention from the who or from the why to the how. How can the Corinthians follow Paul in his ways when he's not there? Timothy's coming. See, Timothy was a close, faithful brother. He was like a carbon copy of Paul, and he was going to show Paul or show them Paul's ways. So what does this boil itself down to in a word? Discipleship. It is one-on-one life transformation. And, you know, I won't, I won't spend a whole lot of time on this, but I just want to let you know that there are nine of us now who have volunteered to hone our discipleship-making skills. So you pray for us. Over the next uh, 19 or so weeks, we're going to be doing this. We're going to be meeting on a regular basis and learning how to do this, how to uh, help someone else become like Jesus. And let me encourage you. Now, let me, let me strongly encourage you that if you're not making disciples right now, when are you going to get in the game? When are you going to become a disciple maker? Because that's what Jesus commanded the church to do. Isn't that true? And finally, Paul makes an announcement. Lord willing, I will return. I will find out those who are making this big flash in the pan with their words and exercising human wisdom to divide the church. Get ready, he says, because I will deal with those who are trying to divide the fellowship. I would rather come with a spirit of love and of gentleness. But if I need to, I will come with a very heavy hand, a rod of correction. Remember, I'm your spiritual father, and God has given me authority to exercise discipline. Don't make me have to do this. So what to make of 1 Corinthians 4? As we finish today's message, I want to stress one point here, and here's the bottom line. The reality is this. We are all fools. Let's just own it. We're all fools. Either we are following God's own fool as in the Lord Jesus, Or we have been fooled by the world, having bought into the Corinthian comfort, which is nothing but a marketing ploy to enjoy the world and its ways. If we're following Jesus, count on the world looking at us as nothing but scum. They don't want us. Let's let's just own this. They don't want us. We do not fit in. We really are aliens and strangers in this world. Let's embrace the scum mentality for the sake of Jesus. And the bottom line is, Paul said he was a fool for Christ. My question is, whose fool are you? So come lose your life for a carpenter's son, for a madman who died for a dream. 
and you'll have the faith his first followers had, and you'll feel the weight of the beam as in beam of your own cross. So surrender the hunger to say you must know. Have the courage to say, I believe. For the power of paradox opens your eyes and blinds those who say they can see. We in our foolishness thought we were wise. He played the fool and he opened our eyes. We in our weakness believed we were strong. He became helpless to show we were wrong. So we follow God's own fool. For only the foolish can tell. Believe the unbelievable. Come be a fool as well. Let's pray. Lord, we are struck by how different your ways and our ways are. In fact, Lord, through Isaiah, you said that our ways are not your ways and your ways are not our ways. It's totally different. That, Lord, we somehow try to use human wisdom to try to put those things together, but that will not work. Lord, we thank you for the wisdom that you gave the Apostle Paul. We thank you, Lord, for the way that he lived it out and, and, and the reality that he came to, the, the conclusion he came to. And Lord, as he told the Corinthians, he in, this, he in essence turned his back on the world. He no longer desired the, as we call, the Corinthian comfort because, Lord, he knew that the world would never accept him. He knew as soon as he, he, he followed you, even the moment he began to follow you, Lord, that he was going to be an outcast from the world. Lord Jesus, you said that the world hated you because you told the world it's evil. And Lord, we are identifying with you. There is a target on our backs. But Lord, we don't like that. We would much rather the world, other people accept us. But Lord, we want to now turn and follow you. Lord, your ways are foolishness to the ways of the world, and vice versa. But Lord, we're asking for your strength. We're asking for your help. We're asking for your, for everything that we need, Lord, to follow you, regardless of what the world tells us. We want to be like Pilgrim in Pilgrim's Progress, who is crying out, leaving the uh, city of destruction, crying out, life, life, eternal life. Lord, we want to follow you because you alone have the words of eternal life. And so now, Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters who are here in the midst of all the, the, all the panic uh, that the world is trying to throw at us. Lord, there are some churches that can't even meet because they have a lot of people and uh, they have been banned from doing so. But Lord, I thank you that you've allowed us to come together to worship. And Lord, uh, speaking of worship, I pray as we turn our attention to the giving, Lord, that we will give from a heart that's truly full of who you are and full of wisdom and full of, of love for you. Lord, we can never outgive you. And we thank you, Lord, for allowing us to, to have the power to gain wealth. Lord, thank you for the resources that we have. And I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to give with a heart that's truly overflowing and full of gratitude for what you've done for us. And we're going to thank you and praise you for what you'll do with it. In Jesus' name.